in over 35 years of pastoral ministry. I have never been in a place in a relationship with the Bible and Jesus like I am today. Years ago, it was very important to wow people with what we called at the time heavy revelation. So we'd go to the Bible and we'd try to find things that were thought-provoking and that turned the table upside down and challenged people's thinking and that they had never heard before. That was important. Something you had never heard before. Even though the Bible says there's nothing new under the sun, that was our goal. To, you know, because then, then you were considered deep. You know, you, there was sort of that, oh my goodness, we've never heard that before. We need to attend this church. So, that was some years ago. I no longer strive for that. What I strive for is transformation. Whether it's five, fifty, or five hundred that's in the audience I'm speaking to. If the things that we share and discuss bring transformation, then I have met a goal. Here's my other goal, and this one actually comes first. That you would grow closer to Jesus that you would know him more dearly, more passionately, that you would serve him and follow him more passionately, and that everything in your life would be surrendered to him. That is my ultimate goal in bringing you the word of the Lord. So with this series, metaneo, what a great word. Let's return to some definitions here. So we are on part three this morning, and I'm going to talk to you about wrath, God's wrath, forgiveness, and the cross. The word repentance is often associated with this Greek word, metaneo, and that's a fabricated word from the Latin word penance. And it's given religion a lot of mileage into the lives and the pocketbooks of people, holding them doctrinally to a doctrine about God and hell and wrath and all of that that kept them coming and kept them there and kept them afraid. And, of course, as we discussed last week, there have even been times in the church where church leadership used penance and repentance to gather money. The word metaneo actually comes from two words in the Greek. Number one, meaning together with, and number two, the mind. And so it means together with God's mind. To repent means to be together with, it's a radical mind shift is what it is. To realize God's thoughts towards us. This is what I so loved about what you shared. We're not praying God bring something from the outside. We're praying God release something that's already in me. That mind shift is metaneo. 
It's the very definition of metaneo. To put God at the center of your mind, to think like he thinks about you. And that begins by knowing and researching and getting to know both the Word and the Holy Spirit. You've got to have both. Why is this so important, Pastor Jeff? And why are you so passionate about this Word? I'll tell you why. Because what you believe about God will shape your view of yourself, your purpose, your value, your relationships, as well as others. And ultimately, this affects how you live in this world. Too many believers in Christ are living far beneath their inheritance. And far too many Christians are living in this world and those who are not Christ followers see no real difference in their lives, their attitudes, their demeanor, their joy, their victory, their finances, their health, or anything else. And there's something wrong with that. Christ came to give us life. His life. The life he had when he was walking on this planet. He demonstrated what it was like to live in heaven. He called it the kingdom. And he said, I have come to bring the kingdom on earth. And then he taught us to pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus taught us to pray the will of God the rule of God into our everyday circumstances. To have that, to possess that, we have to understand the process of metaneo. We have to be given to the lifestyle of metaneo. All right. Keeping in mind that I no longer say anything in my sermon for shock value. I say it with the goal of bringing you closer to Christ and transformation than I offer the following three observations. Let me preface them by saying much of what the church has believed in recent years regarding the atonement is simply wrong. Number one, Jesus did not die in our place as a substitute. I want to underscore, substitute. Hang on, stay with me. At least get through this message. All right, all right. Study it, pray about it. Number two, Jesus did not pay the penalty for our sin. And number three, Jesus did not receive the wrath of God. Now, we're going to start there, and let's go. Let's expand this. Why dare I say such a thing in a Christian church? It's all based on what's called the atonement theory. There are actually three different theories regarding atonement. The Western church, and I dare say most of you sitting in this room, have only heard of one. You, like me, grew up with this one completely devoid of any understanding of the other two. I'm going to begin with the one that is the oldest, 
the one that was followed by our church fathers and believed by the earliest church fathers. It's called Christus Victor. Christus Victor. From the cross until A.D. 1100, this was the absolute dominant view of atonement. It comes from the Latin word, Christ the victor. It's also known as the ransom view. Christ the victor. And here you see that from the cross to 1100 AD, this was their view, including all of the early church fathers of atonement. Let me give you a brief definition of it. It goes like this. God gave authority to man. You remember that in the garden. The devil tricked Adam and Eve. Then the devil had authority over the earth. King Jesus came, took back the keys, and gave that authority back to humanity. Jesus came to earth, to summarize, to take back the authority over the earth and that which Adam and Eve had lost. Christus Victor was the view of the church for 1,100 years. Number two. It's called the satisfaction theory. Now, about 1100, Anselm, who was the Bishop of Canterbury, introduced a new theory regarding atonement. This was his definition. He changed the focus to sin. The focus became human sin and that that was dishonoring to God. He's also the one that introduced the idea of a wall of separation. Humans are sinful, therefore they are separate from a holy God. Sin was the focus of atonement. And someone had to come back and pay the debt of sin. Now, this is all based on an idea of God, that God demands justice. By the way, let me be quick to point out, that when Anselm introduced this idea of satisfaction, he never presented it, nor did he ever say that someone had to be punished in the place of anybody. He simply switched the focus to sin and dishonoring God and introduced the idea of being separate from God, a great chasm between man and God. Number three, and here's one that you may not have ever heard of, and please do not bring up any slides before I bring them up on the television, of course. But it is the predominant theory of atonement, by far, in Western church, and certainly in America. And it's the one you learned, I promise you, both in Sunday school and in the preaching from the pulpit. It's called penal substitution. About the 1500s, John Calvin came along and added this. How many of you have ever heard of John Calvin? Some of you certainly. You may have studied that, Bible school or what have you. John Calvin, almost like no other person, certainly recently, since this time, the 1500s, has had more influence on the theology and the doctrine of the modern church, I should say the Western church, than any other person. In this theory, he holds to that sin is dishonoring to God, 
But then he introduces sin deserves punishment. Therefore, humans deserve punishment because of sin. God must judge sin, and therefore, we must be judged. But God sends Jesus in our place. He took our punishment. And note the very legal language of all of this. Very legal. That's interesting because John Calvin was a lawyer by trade, by career. Calvin also taught something called limited atonement. And by the way, this is still held to and practiced today in a great many circles. Limited atonement says that Jesus took the punishment for Christians, which he calls the elect, but not for the rest of humanity. We might illustrate that this way. Well, here we're just again seeing the timeline. Uh, Christus Victor up until 1100s, then Anselm, and then John Calvin up into our day. So, Jesus, King Jesus, introduced the possibility of forgiveness because he was going to pay the debt for our sins, but it was only available to the elect and not available to the non-Christian. The non-Christian, of course, would go to hell. There's a problem with that theory of limited atonement. This passage from 1 John chapter 2, Jesus is the atoning sacrifice, read the bold parts out loud, for our sins and not only for ours but also for the sins of the, whoops, forgot to read that passage before I put out a doctrinal statement. Now into this mix comes the idea of forgiveness or punishment. And all of a sudden because of these three different theories on atonement, the latter two, obviously more recent, much more recent, not paternal, not the ones believed by our church fathers. All of a sudden, the death of Christ starts looking more like punishment than simply forgiveness. You say, well, can't we have both? Obviously, Christ pays the price. He pays the debt. He's punished for our sins, and then we get forgiveness. No, you can't have both. Think of it this way. For you that are mortgage owners, you only have one of two choices. You either pay the debt or the bank calls you and says, we've canceled it. Forgiven. It's one or the other, but it can't be both. You either pay the debt, somebody has to pay that debt, or the bank simply cancels it and forgives it. You don't have to pay it if the bank forgives it. Some of you are starting to track already. And I like that. I can see some light bulbs going on. Since the 1100s, the emphasis on atonement was completely switched from forgiveness to punishment. Calvinism introduced that in the 1500s. Here's the concept. 
We have the great courtroom scene with an angry God as judge, demanding payment for the debt of sin. Jesus steps in and says, I'll die in their place. I'll pay the debt for their sins. We sing it. We've said it this morning already. We've used the language. And what all of this amounts to is the legalization of Christianity. And it was never part of our early fathers, early church fathers' creeds, or belief about atonement. Invented by Calvin, whose background was law, judge instead of father, legal lens instead of relational lens. And here's the big problem with it all. It fails to view atonement through the one person everything we believe must be viewed through, Jesus Christ. We said it last week. About how that the Bible perfectly points to Jesus, even though the Bible is itself not perfect. And we gave you reasons for that. And if you've not listened to last week's message, or, and if you've not yet purchased the book that I recommended to you, Sinners in the Hand or hands of a loving God. You must get these things. I do not want to discuss and argue these points with you unless you're willing to read and to study and to do a little bit of homework as a baseline for our discussion. I'd be happy to do. I'd be happy to meet and to argue the points or to go through the scriptures, but you need a baseline for what you believe. And I can promise you, if you are like me and the majority of Western Christians, you've never even been taught this. I don't know from what pulpit you would have been taught it. And most of our Bible schools haven't. And yet it's always been there. So I begin to say, the real problem as we should view it now with Calvin's theories is this. The story that Jesus gave us about the prodigal son. Think about it. Was it about punishment or was it about forgiveness? After the son realized as he was feeding slop to the pigs and he came to himself, the Bible says, and he said, I just need to go home. I had it better there. I'll I'll rise, I'll get out of here and I'll go home and I'll beg. I'll pay whatever debt. Scripture says that before he even got there, while he was still in the field, his father saw him, indicating that the father had been looking for him. The only separation was in the life of the son and not the father's mind. There was no separation in the father's mind. Ooh, oh, hallelujah. And he had been watching for his son, believing in faith, knowing because of the DNA that was in his son that was his own DNA that soon, someday, his son would return. And so every day he'd look and he'd watch the horizon and all of a sudden he saw a body in a field at a great distance coming. And the scripture says the father got up and ran towards his son. No punishment, just embrace. The son fell into his arms and said, Father, I have sinned against you. He made it all about sin. The father wasn't even thinking about that, never brought it up. 
He said, look, I'll do whatever you want. I'll, I'll, I'll just become one of your lowly servants and do work around the home if you'll let me just come back. And before he could finish his sentence, his father said, nonsense, listen. You are all servants, and his servants had run out there with him, of course, to experience this. Go get a robe. Put it on him, the best you can find. Adorn his fingers with gold. Let's throw a party. Go get the fatted calf and kill it. We're going to have a party tonight, for my son has come home. No mention by the father of sin, punishment, retribution, or payment of debt. Simple forgiveness for the son who had never left as far as the father was concerned. Now, I realize it's difficult this morning for us to process some of this in light of certain passages of scripture that we've been taught. Let's deal with two of the by far most famous that would seem to indicate and tell us that atonement is about punishment and paying off a debt. You ready? Let's go in our Bibles. Psalm chapter 22. I'm getting my Bible here because I wanted to do this one on paper. Psalm 22. All right. Before we read this verse, I want you to picture in your mind Golgotha. I want you to picture the scene of the hill where Jesus and two thieves are being crucified. One thief on either side of Jesus and Jesus now has been raised and the cross that he's hanging on has been erected and put into the hole and Jesus with arms outstretched Knees bent as his feet were nailed into the cross, is hanging there, gasping for breath as the weight of his body, after being flogged and beaten, is hanging there on that cross. And I want you to remember what you've read as we read verse 1 of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me. Remember that? Sure you do. Matthew chapter 27 verse 46. Jesus uttered on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And from that point, it's like not from that point, for after 1100 years, all the way into 1500s, Calvin introduces the idea that by that phrase, Jesus uttering this prophetic statement, Jesus is saying, now that I have become sin, you can't look upon me, and I am separate from you in my bearing of the sin of the world. Matthew, did anybody turn there real quick? Matthew 27. I want to be sure. Verse 46, Matthew... In 46, now from the sixth hour and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, 
lema sabachane, which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yeah. Okay. Now here's the interesting thing. Jesus is hanging on the cross. He utters just the first statement of a prophetic chapter from the psalmist. And if we keep reading, we find that the picture introduced by certain theologians is not at all what happened in the discourse between Jesus and God. Let's work our way down, please, to verse 24 of Psalm 22. I'll start in verse 23. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob glorify him and stand in awe of him all you who are offspring of Israel for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted he has not hidden his face from him but has heard when he cried to him keep in mind this is not just a general song being sung by the psalmist this is a prophetic psalm that Jesus quoted the first verse of, hanging on the cross. We took his words to mean that God literally turned his back on Jesus and would not look at him because he became sin. And the scripture clearly says, you have not forsaken me. You did not turn your face from me. And as we keep reading verse 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him. And they bow down, they go down into, uh, go, they, excuse me, bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to, watch this, to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Sounds like Christus Victor. Not penal substitution. <laughs> Love that. So often we simply do not just keep reading the Bible. There's a passage in Isaiah where also it's taken that he turned his face from him. And yet when you keep on reading in the passage it says, And you have not turned your face from him. You can't cherry pick scriptures out of the Bible to teach Theology and doctrine. Now, let's go to the second most famous, most common, most used passage of Scripture that deals with atonement from which we have gotten our beliefs about penal substitution. What might I be speaking about? We've already read it this morning during communion. Isaiah chapter 53. Let's read the particular scriptures in question. Um, Isaiah 53 and I'm going to start in, well let's start in verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? 
For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, notice who hid their face from him. Not God. He was despised and we esteemed him not. We esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. We esteemed him. God did not say that's what he was doing. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. But he was wounded for our transgressions. Now, the language gets intense here. Watch. And he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. Verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray and have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord, watch this, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Certainly sounds substitutionary. In fact, sounds pretty legal and penal. Right? He was oppressed, verse 7, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb. He was led to the slaughter and like sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Verse 8 is important. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Boy, the language of this. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. And there was no deceit in his mouth, our precious Savior, our precious Lord. Verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. I hope you are reading along or at least taking good notes. Because this really gets important. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt... He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. It is well known that this passage of scripture is manipulated in the translation. Translations of this and many passages in the Bible were heavenly influenced in their translation by the translation teams, by Calvinistic thinking, Calvinistic thinking and preaching. Keep in mind that the translation of the Bible that you hold, and actually since the Bible, first Bible that was ever printed, came in the 1500s, there was never a Bible printed, not a single translation of the Bible ever printed until after Calvin. Well then, Jeff, 
what's our alternative? You're telling us now that this passage was manipulated for the belief of something introduced called penal substitution back in the 1500s that even our church fathers did not believe. That's exactly what I'm telling you. So, let me give you an answer though. Our best option is the one that Jesus had in his own day. It's called the Septuagint. The Septuagint LXX. It was produced, get this, around 200 to 300 BC before Christ. It was the standard Greek Bible of Jesus' day. Modern translations tend to fit best with the penal substitution theory, but better translations using the Septuagint as their start show that Jesus took sin upon himself as if it were a plague and then the Father cleansed him of that plague of sin. I'm going to show you exactly what I mean here. Here's verse 5 from a very popular, in fact, probably in the last 60 years, 50 years, the most popular uh, English translation used widely by the majority of Christians in America for sure. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. But watch now as we read that same verse from the Septuagint. He became sick because of our sins. The pedagogy, I'm not even sure how to pronounce it. In other words, I'm sorry, somebody? Pedagogy. You guys just like know this. Why are you? Oh, you're teachers. You all are teachers. Okay. Say it again real loud. Pedagogy, which means your profession or the teaching, especially the profession of teaching, of our peace was upon him. With his bruises, we are healed. Now that changes entirely. Verse 5. The atonement that's part of the story is not God beating Jesus out of anger, wrath, and punishment. Instead, it's the suffering, the iniquity, the transgression of all of mankind, humankind, was laid on Jesus as the atonement lamb. And then we go to verse 8 again from the New International Version. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. There's that very legal language again. But the Septuagint doesn't say that at all. By the transgression of my people, he is plagued. There's a great deal of difference between the word for and by. For indicates the suggestion of substitution. He was plagued for, or he was stricken, as the translation says. If we go back, uh uh-oh, don't do that on me. Let's go here. For the transgression of my people, he was punished, right? Lends itself to the idea of substitution, and it's inaccurate, and it's, it is an inaccurate translation. But by the transgression of my people, he is plagued, means it was fully my transgression, not God's will. God was not punishing Jesus, it was the condition of humankind by which Jesus became plagued. Why is that important? Because sin in the mind of God is not something to be judged and punished and paid the debt for. It is a plague. It is disease and it is illness. 
and our loving Father forgives it and then gave us Jesus to eradicate it. And at about that point, we ought to all be saying hallelujah. God is not seeking to punish anyone. God was not trying to punish Jesus. Jesus willingly became everything that humanity was living in. This disease, this plague of sin introduced in the garden. All of its effects, Jesus willingly took. Not under punishment, but by it, he became it. And then it was a plague that he bore to the cross. So by the transgression, not for the transgression. And instead of punished, the Young's literal translation says that he was plagued with disease. In other words, the plague refers to what it was like for Jesus when as the perfect, healthy, sinless lamb, the disease of sin, the disease of the sin of Israel was placed on him. And by their transgression, he was plagued. Now, here, here comes the big one. Verse 10. Watch this. Verse 10 from the New International Version. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. It was the Lord's will to... This is like theology 101. This is Sunday school in the Western church. <laughs> this is penal substitution. This is what I was taught and raised with. This is what I learned in Bible school. The Septuagint. And the Lord desires to purify him of the plague. It couldn't be more different. Are you getting the picture? Are you beginning to get the story? Jesus actually was not punished with our sin. That Jesus did not bear the sacrifice of an angry God who was trying to destroy and punish. Jesus didn't even come to pay the debt. Jesus, by our transgression, he became a plague. And God said, I'm going to remove that plague, starting with forgiving all of humanity in Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 17 through 19 and God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not counting their sins against them never mentions punishment never mentions paying the debt he simply says He's not even counting your sins up. Well, now, if he's not keeping track, why are you? And if he's not keeping track of your sins, what right do I have to develop religious teaching or religious relationship with you based on your moral character and practice? I have to allow the Holy Spirit to bring you as he brings me to 
together, both of us, into the revelation that Jesus became a plague. But the Lord forgave it and wiped that plague out. And so the scripture ends in verse 6 with this. And by his stripes you are healed. You know what the sin, the plague of sin needs? Not punishment. Forgiveness. Oh, and let me remind you, there aren't two options. Either somebody has to pay the debt or the bank's going to forgive it. And God looked upon you and me and out of his love, because God is love, he's never been angry, he's never been distant, he's never not liked you, he's never been far away, he's never been a God of punishment and anger and wrath. And out of his great love, he looked upon this plague and said, I forgive you. And I remove the plague and by his stripes you are healed. So that Paul writes one of the greatest passages in all of the New Testament. God was in Christ reconciling the world. Not just Christians. Not just people that pray the prayer. To himself. People have asked me, well, what do you think about the passages in the Bible that certainly seem to apply that God is a wrathful God and that how about the genocide in the Old Testament where God wiped out whole towns and cities and cultures of people the children and the the women and the children ordered commanded that they all be wiped out there are answers for that but I can tell you this God doesn't look like a punishing God. God doesn't look like John Calvin. John, or God doesn't look even like John the Baptist or Paul. God looks like Jesus. God doesn't look like the Pharisee who, you remember the woman who was caught in sin. You know who brought her caught in adultery? The woman and... They threw her before Jesus, all the religious people. They were trying to catch Jesus in a trap because they knew that if Jesus really believed the scriptures that they taught, he would have to agree to her stoning. And Jesus knelt down and he wrote in the ground. And then he stood up and he said, let him who is among you without sin cast the first stone. Now get this. The scripture, the Bible of their day, said you've got to stone her for her adultery. Jesus says, right? You start. You start. And they all dropped their rocks and walked off. Watch this. And he looked down at her and he said, Woman, where are your accusers? And she looked around and she saw them all leaving and she said, there aren't any more, Lord. Watch this. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. 
get up. And oh, by the way, I know it's quoted. Go and sin no more. It's actually not in the Greek text. Neither do I condemn you. God doesn't look like Moses. God doesn't look like a Pharisee. God looks like Jesus. And Jesus did not require her sin to be punished. He forgave it. And oh, by the way, he forgave it and hadn't gone to the cross yet. How do you do that? If your whole idea of God is wrapped around the theory of penal substitution, how do you forgive somebody before the cross? John Welton, in his tremendous volume called Understanding the Whole Bible, the King, the Kingdom, and the New Covenant, says, and I quote, in this passage, referring to Isaiah 53, sin is pictured as a disease that humanity has. And the atonement lamb, Jesus, the suffering servant, stepped in and took the disease on himself, carrying our sins and burdens, our sorrows, and all of it like a plague to the cross. Through his death and his resurrection, he took his plague into the grave. And when he came out of the grave, he left it all in the grave. And as a result, he released, watch, listen, as a result, he released a new creation and a new race of a second Adam. We get a very different picture from this passage when we translate it without the lens of the modern atonement theories and we put the Father and the Son not at odds with each other but in perfect agreement as the Trinity. Because now think about it. And I never considered this. All my adult life, since, in fact, since being a teenager and in Sunday school, I learned that God turned his back on Jesus when Jesus was hanging on the cross and that they were separated. I never considered something. In that moment, by the way, God never stops, Jesus never stopped being God. Jesus never ceased being fully God, even while hanging on the cross. And yet, I accepted the lie that as Jesus was hanging there, God turned his back on him and wouldn't even look at him, is what I've been told. That's what I was taught. Wouldn't even look at him. Are you saying God turned his back on himself? Now you have separation in the Trinity. I never considered that. And no matter who you are and in what age, central to the gospel, central to all of theology is this, that the Trinity is in perfect agreement, perfect accord, never separate, and they change not. God is immutable. He changes not. How do I deal with difficult passages in the Old Testament? Through the lens of Jesus. Because God looks 
like Jesus. So what that tells me is that I don't change my doctrine to adopt a new theory. I change my reading of scripture so that it comes into line with the sun. Let's bow our heads.